This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. The phone, that screen that you're watching this through, it's not yours. You think it's yours, and it is legally, but morally, ethically, actually, it's everyone's. What is property? Well, according to Proudhon, property is theft, although not quite all property, as it turns out. Pierre-Joseph Proudhon was the first self-declared anarchist. He wrote What is Property in 1840. He was a wide-ranging and difficult writer. He wasn't a system builder. He was critical of utopianisms, and he was fascinated with contradictions. For Proudhon, the ideal society was a contractual one, where individuals are free to arrange their relationships under conditions of justice. But for justice to flourish, its laws had to be known to all. To understand his theory of property then, it's important to start with his idea of justice. He wrote, Justice is the central star which governs society, the pole around which the political world revolves, the principal and regulator of all transactions. Nothing takes place between men save in the name of right, nothing without the invocation of justice. Justice, nothing else, that is the alpha and omega of my argument. A human interaction is guided by laws, which are the product of calculations, feelings or facts about what we perceive to be right. We live, in other words, by socialised rules. We queue, we say thank you, we pay tax, we drive on one side of the road, we have the right of free speech up to the point of causing disturbances. These rules are the rules of justice. They are intended to make us all freer in the long term. One of those rules is property. We can own stuff. It's ours exclusively. But, Proudhon asks, what if property was a miscalculation, a misunderstanding of the moral law, a mistake that we've been paying for ever since, an original sin that has led to many of our problems? Let's really think about it. What is property? Property, normalised as it's been, seems to be natural to us. But why is that? Is it a natural right, a natural law, a right of the strong against the weak? It seems like an absolute right, the right to hold property, like the right to life, liberty or equality before the law. But take a look at the right to life and liberty. Rights are the question of what is absolute. Equality before the law is absolute. It cannot be sold, nor can your life or liberty. This would seem perverse to us. But property isn't absolute in the same way. It's taxed, for example. Some of the actual property is taken by the government. Surely it can't be an absolute right, then. Proudhon says that if that was the case, if my possessions are my own, no one has a claim upon them. 
Think of that list of socialised rules and rights. Behind all of them, behind any law, is the idea of justice. What's correct, right, moral, from a social point of view. So what's the justification, and note just at the beginning of justification here, for property? Well, philosophical justifications for property usually come in two types. Arguments for occupation and arguments for labour will start as Proudhon does with occupation. He writes, the right of occupation or of the first occupant is that which results from the actual, physical, real possession of a thing. I occupy a piece of land and the presumption is that I am the proprietor until the contrary is proved. In a state of nature, I stumbled across some land with an apple tree on, for example, and put up a fence and occupy. So the land is my property. But, Proudhon argues, if this is the case, occupation is simply toleration. In other words, it requires the consent of others. It must be mutual. If it's a right, it must be reciprocal. The theatre, says Cicero, is common to all. The occupation argument implies equality. He says that thine and mine are signs and expressions of personal but equal rights. In other words, the right to occupy is equal to all. The earth is given to us all in common to sustain us. So portioning it up must wrong no one. This, of course, has important repercussions today, where much of the land is already divided. He asks, if the first occupants have occupied everything, what are the newcomers to do? What will become of them, having an instrument with which to work, but no material to work upon? Each man needs to occupy some area to live, some material to work with. If a hundred thousand men settle on an island with no inhabitants, does each not have a right to one one hundredth of the land? He writes, Not only does occupation lead to equality, it prevents property. For since every man, from the fact of his existence, has the right of occupation, and in order to live must have material for cultivation on which he may labour, and since, on the other hand, the number of occupants varies continually with the births and deaths, consequently, occupation is always subordinate to population. So, property cannot be absolute, cannot just be ours. We're simply possessors temporary holders under the supervision of society. Land, a requirement of our very liberty, cannot be appropriated. Property, then, is theft. He asks, if water, fire and air cannot be appropriated, then why should land? Comte said that if a man should be deprived of air for a few moments only, he would cease to exist and a partial deprivation would cause him severe suffering. A partial or complete deprivation of food would produce like effects upon him. Man needs light from the stars, Earth's atmosphere, fresh water, and of course, land.
A man who should be prohibited from walking in the highways, from resting in the fields, from taking shelter in caves, from lighting fires, from picking berries, from gathering herbs and boiling them in a bit of baked clay. Such a man could not live. So we are justified in using these things, as long as we guarantee the use of them to others. We come back again and again to a type of equality. He writes, Equality of possessions, equality of rights, liberty, will, personality, are so many identical expressions of one and the same idea. The right of preservation and development, in a word, the right of life. But we do still need to possess some things to live. We must have some right to use property or possession in some way. If this right does not come from occupation, where does it come from? Proudhon now turns to those that have argued that property is justified by labour. John Locke's theory of property is the most well-known of these. He said that a person has a right to an object as property when they have laboured upon it. Without this right, how could people live, after all? I come across an apple tree. I labour by plucking an apple from it. I then have a right to that apple because of the value added from my labour. Proudhon's criticisms of this come in a few different forms. First, he says, labour might give you a right of possession, the apple, but not the means. Take the farmer who tills in the field or looks after the orchard and so makes it their property. Does the fisherman own the river because he fishes in it? Or does the farmer have a right to the field because he tills it? Well, as we've seen with occupancy, the answer is no. So while the farmer and the fisherman might have a right to the product of their labour, they do not make property of the means to that product. There's a distinction here between the means of production and the value added to it. So you could say that the labourer adds something to the land and so has a right to what is added. If I make a shovel from ore and wood from resources I find, can I justifiably say it's mine? Well, first, no, because the ore and the wood come from occupancy. And as we've seen, this can change. As more people are born, for example, more have a rights claim on raw materials that are used. From this perspective, I can possess it, borrow it, use it, as long as it's not harming anyone. But still, surely parts of it are mine, the part I added value to through my labour. Fine, says Proudhon, but most value is added socially. He writes, There is not a man, then, who does not live off the products of several thousand industries, not a labourer who does not receive from society at large the things which he consumes. He goes on, One product cannot exist without another. An isolated industry is impossible. What would be the harvest of the farmer if others did not manufacture for him barns, wagons, ploughs, clothes, etc.? What would the scholar do without the publisher, the printer, without the typesetter and the machinist, and these in their turn without a multitude of other industries? It might seem hyperbolic, but his point to remember is that if 
labor is what produces rights to property, then all those that contributed to any object must be compensated. They must own part of the property. It is their right, after all. And that's what the theorists of property say. There are then, by their standards, social property rights. If I come over here and add a load of value by my labour to this plot of land, for example, and the value of this plot goes up from the owner not doing anything, where has that value come from? It's come from the labour over here. Proudhon asks those that argue that property is the result of labour, if that is true, then why do so many who labour not have property? In fact, most labour, and so this should lead to some kind of equality. How is it that some labour and have enough to secure their entire futures, and others labour and cannot feed themselves for more than a day? Furthermore, he says, if labour is the basis of property, then the proprietor gives up his field as soon as they receive rent for it from another, as soon as they are idle and someone else is using it. Ultimately, this line of thinking leads Proudhon to a loose equality. He writes, the limited quantity of available material proves the necessity of dividing the labour among the whole number of labourers. The capacity given to all of accomplishing a social task, that is, an equal task, and the impossibility of paying one labourer save in the products of another, justify the equality of wages. And more than this, the obvious conclusion is that usury rent and wage labour becomes immoral. If I'm forced to rent because all of the land has been taken, to borrow money because I have no capital, or to sell my labour because I have no product to work on of my own, then I'm being stolen from. Property is theft. Proudhon says, the field which I have cleared, which I cultivate, on which I have built my house, which supports myself, my family and my livestock, I can possess, first, as the original occupant, second, as a labourer, third, by virtue of the social contract which assigns it to me as my share. But none of these titles confer upon me the right of property. For if I attempt to base it upon occupancy, society can reply, I am the original occupant. If I appeal to my labour, it will say it is only on that condition that you possess. From these two lines of criticisms, labour and occupation, Proudhon has ultimately argued that all possession has a dual nature, a part that is ours by virtue of needing it for the flourishing of our own liberty, and a part that is society's who have contributed to its value and still has a right to it based on need and occupation. Another way of summing this up might be to say that everything is only really borrowed. Ultimately, his theory of property can be summed up by his phrase, the right to product is exclusive, juice in re, the right to means is common, juice ad rem. 
Proudhon is one of the most important figures in the history of socialist and radical thought. As George Woodcock has written, for Proudhon, property is incompatible with justice because in practice it represents the exclusion of the worker from his equal rights to enjoy the fruits of society. So with what Proudhon has said in mind, ask yourself this, is landlordism justified when all the land has been taken? Is rent, rent on capital, on loans, usury? It's the very idea of ownership as simple as you first thought. Hey everyone, I feel very lucky to be able to say that I'm finally at the point where I can commit full time to making these videos. Um, it's a great honour to be able to do that. I absolutely love doing it. I'm going to make two or three videos a month and continue to improve the quality and the research and do a few more experiments and chats and rambles in between. But it is a time consuming job. It's a full time job and it is just me. So unfortunately, right now, Patreon is still the only way that Ben and I survives. So if you get any value from these videos whatsoever, then please consider pledging a dollar or two dollars on Patreon. If you pledge five dollars or ten dollars or more even, I will add your name to the credits, I will put scripts and the audio and at some point the videos out early for Patreons only. So if there's anything you'd like to see there, then please let me know. But if you can't afford that right now, then of course it's enough to just press like, subscribe, share, and remember to click that bell to be notified to new videos. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you next time. And I'll see you next time. And I'll see you next time.